0: Welcome to the Adult Child of Dysfunction Podcast, where we untangle the past, rewrite the present, and reclaim our future. I am your host, Tammy Vincent, and together we will break free from old patterns, heal wounds, and create new narratives. Are you ready to transform the effects of your dysfunctional past into your superpowers? Are you excited to get back in touch with your true authentic self? If so, then hit subscribe and join me weekly on the Adult Child of Dysfunction Podcast, Here we will learn from experts as well as experienced thrivers how to turn our trials into smiles while living our most authentic and joyful lives. Well, hello, everybody, and glad to have you back. Today we have a special guest with us, Allie Hall. Allie is an accomplished writer and author of the highly praised novel, As Far as You Can Go Before You Have to Come Back. If that doesn't sum it all up, Allie, so go go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm so excited to have you here.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. It's it's just always exciting when someone is interested in this book because it's not the easiest topic: sexual trauma of a child. Um, let's see. I am an incest survivor. I didn't start dealing with that until my mid twenties. I just kind of floated along as if it were not problematic. Um, But I did not have a successful life. And I got myself into 12-step programs. And through primarily OA, where I let go of uh, binging and vomiting, and then also compulsive overeating, I could not ignore anymore what had shaped me. Uh, I was going to – I really felt my brain literally, like, twisting. It was like the denial was really, like – fighting the inside of my head. And so I started to work on it. And I uh I was working as a journalist, but I never thought of myself as a novelist until about 5 years into the recovery from uh sexual abuse, the incest in my childhood. I suddenly had this idea of a young girl who's being sexually assaulted, um who's being raped and she figures out a way to steal a bunch of money and run away to Asia. Now I had come back from Asia about three years prior. I'd lived there. No, no. I'd come back from Asia about five years before that because my healing started in Asia. And then I had to come to the States for inpatient treatment. And then I decided to stay here because I just didn't have the support living in Tokyo. There just wasn't the level of support that I needed. So I put my healing over my fun times and uh, settled down in in Seattle and I was working as a journalist and suddenly had this idea for a book. And because I had lived in Asia, it was just too rich uh, stories to pull from just knowing those environments. And I had lived in Japan and really loving Japanese culture as I did and feeling that was very strongly a part of my healing in some very nonlinear but potent fashion.
0: Perfect. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. And neat that you could incorporate your real life into a novel. And I love that because it's it's real. It's not just what you've read about. It's what you've actually experienced and what you've seen. And like you said, you can pull all the culture in. That is very cool. Now, before we got on here, we spoke about your intro to your book or your forward or however you say it. Um, it's I would the first love to chapter. Just, yes, I would love to hear that. And I'm sure the audience would too. It'll just probably kind of sum up exactly what you're going to be talking about and encourage people to get your book.
1: Sure, that'd be great. So it's this is just page one. It's called "I was watching myself from beside myself." I was watching myself from beside myself. I saw myself crouched on the dim light of all horror stairs. I'm sorry. I saw myself crouched in the dim light of our hall stairs. I was eavesdropping on my father and Lyle, one of my father's best friends. My father and Lyle whispered about my older sister, Patrice. I heard Lyle say, Patrice has gotten mighty curvy all of a sudden, and it wasn't a compliment. My fingers dug as far as they could go into the blue parts of the Persian style runner that carpeted our hall stairs. My father agreed about Patrice in his voice as plush as the runner. He used that carpet voice only with Lyle and their other buddy, Ted. When I heard that voice, I left for the ceiling didn't press against it, I was as empty as light, looking down on myself on the stairs. Same Catholic uniform as all the girls wore, but I knew what was coming. For three years, my father and his friends had taken Patrice to Lyle's cabin in the mountains, and they left me at home to take care of our brother, little Matt. The next time they went, they left Patrice at home to take care of little Matt.
0: Wow, that is powerful. So Thank for you. those of you that are, are listening, and I'm not sure if you are aware of dissociative tendencies or something that happens, but Ali is clearly talking, at least this is how I interpreted it, as she is literally standing outside of her body watching this. Um, and that is typically what happens in a very traumatic childhood where things your brain just does not want to process so it's you're literally escaping what you think is reality I can look back at things that happened to me in my childhood and it's the same thing I can remember picturing Mm. it and I know exactly what happened but I'm standing outside of myself watching it happen right it's you know it's it's crazy so that obviously was the start of a horrific time of your life
1: (laughs) well this is a novel so we got to remember that I've taken, I finally figured out how to explain this. It's like all your experiences that you have and haven't had combine with everything you're trying to say in this story. And you get like this material. And from that, you cut this piece that becomes the novel. So it's it really is not my story. All the truths are there that okay. are mine. But I, I didn't want to write my story. That didn't seem as fun, really, (laughs) as as writing a novel, which is funny, because I do write a lot of nonfiction, I have a lot of essays published, and I've won uh, two prizes for them. But this story just came to me as like, this is going to be a novel, though I had never even written a successful short story at that point.
0: That's amazing. And it's amazing that it's in bookstores everywhere, and it's going everywhere. And it's exciting. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So when did you actually write the book? When did you
1: publish it? It published in March of 2023. I started writing it about 30 years earlier. Wow. Yeah, it took me about seven, eight years to write a draft that I could start to send around to agents. And it took, yikes, 23 years after that before I finally found the right publisher at the right time. Really, Me too really helped because there were several kind of Zeitgeist around sexual trauma. If you think about the 90s with Oprah and then in the 2000s, it kind of came up again. There was a book and a movie called The Lovely Bones, uh, but I had never had the book ready at that time. It just wasn't ready. And so I would get rejection. I would keep writing and I keep sending out and I keep writing. And then things started to happen um, sort of when Me Too started to happen. I a lot of my short stories started to get picked up. So then I had the resume that was more like what an agent or an editor would look at. You know, I had good magazines on my CV and then I just found the right publisher and it just happened. And I think that's just, you know, you as a writer, you just got to keep putting it out there and trusting that at some point the right situation will come across, because if you don't keep putting it out there and the right situation comes across your desk, you're not going to be ready for it. <laughs> so right. you got to keep trying. You got to keep trying.
0: Exactly. And I know now self-publishing is very common. And then I went and self-published my own two books and then they got banned on Amazon anyway. So it was.
1: Like, oh my God. For what?
0: Um, they, It was just AI just picked it up and didn't like the cover and the, the title and the cover together combined. They just artificial intelligence picked it up as me condoning or depicting abuse which the name of the book oh, is no. surviving alcoholic parents so in a in essence it was not condoning it but it was telling people how to deal with it yes. and um it's more of a reference guide and I kind of laughed but you know when you're talking about Amazon you're talking about a huge company it's not like you can yeah. call someone up and be like hey Mr. Amazon
1: I know I know right so it is yeah, what Amazon it is. But that's tricky yeah, yeah, I'm so it's, sorry it's, that right. happened. That's so disheartening.
0: That's okay. It, it actually lit a little bit more of a fire under me to get rid of them more, like to sell them more because I just have to find a place to do that. So oh, I'm good. not worried about it at all. But um, again, the name of the book is As Far As You Can Go Before You Have to Come Back. And we will mention that more. But I want to talk, you are an advocate for what's the month this month?
1: Domestic Violence Awareness and Prevention Month. Amen. That's, so yes. do you do a lot of
0: advocacy work for them or for the con- the concept? I,
1: of- you know, it's really interesting because when I was doing the primary part of my healing, it was at the end of the 80s, early 90s. You know, the idea of I think there was a domestic violence awareness month, but there was no court in the country that was going to take your word for this and send somebody to jail or give you money, you know, if you sued them for whatever, rape. Um, It just, it just wasn't in the culture at that time. And I really got that. And I really got that if I went up against my perpetrators, I would just be abused all over again by the court system. And it, I felt absolutely no interest in that having anything to do with me. So I took a look at my healing as a very personal journey. I just said, this is going to have nothing to do with anybody but me. I am going to get better. And so and then I found out that I wanted to write about it. And then that took a whole lot of energy. So for a long time, I did volunteer for a group called um, the Women's Funding Alliance, which is a Seattle area nonprofit that raised money for, it's called an umbrella organization where it raises money specifically for a topic. So they funded, I think it was eight um, nonprofits that had the mission of helping women and girls. So I was, but I I strictly planned events and stuffed envelopes and wrote for their newsletter. I just, I did stuff just to help them raise money. I am not a frontline person. I don't have that like strength that it takes to just be there and see people in the most, just and children in the most horrific situations. So, so when I was at that part of publishing this novel, where you have to get what are called blurbs from people, where they write on the back of the book, oh, the most fantastic book I've ever read and blah, blah, blah. I contact, contacted a group in Ireland run by three sisters, the Kavanaugh sisters. And they run a group that's, um, it's called like Irish Survivors of Trauma Stand Together for Change. And, and their whole focus is trying to get sexual assault looked at as a crime and having perpetrators criminally processed, which what a great idea. And so one of the things they wrote back is you will never know how many people you've helped with this book. And I could I cry when I think of about that, of that now, that just changed everything for me. I suddenly was like, yes, this was a personal experience, but someone with a voice can do something to help other people. I just never put myself in that position of having that kind of um, interest in what I had to say. And so, yes, this, this, is my first Domestic Violence Awareness Month, where I'm really like, it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and you have to pay attention. And April, every April of every year is Sexual Assault Survivors Awareness Month. And now I have a year of my book being out and, you know, some awards. And so I'm going to really be out there about about, uh, child abuse as a crime. And what can we do on that level? It's important to me.
0: Well, it, it's absolutely amazing that, and it kind of sickens me at the same time, that it's not, it hasn't always been a crime. I mean,
1: you know, I mean, it's I absolutely,
0: it's absolutely dumbfounding to me, actually. It is. You know, it's you like, know, I think why... one thing,
1: yeah, one thing we forget when you look at children, when you're reading statistics about child abuse, I think it's important to remember how literally small they are and think of an adult person hitting someone that small or, touching someone sexually or raping them. It's, it just makes you sick. It's just not acceptable. You know, it is a crime. And people who do that need to go to jail, if you ask me.
0: Oh, absolutely. yeah, maybe there
1: they can demonstrate some interest in getting better. Um, you know, and then maybe they can come out. But I think jail is a good place for people like that. I think so too, mm.
0: <laughs> and then get. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't even want to go down that road because it to me, like you said, it is one of those things that is just non negotiable. It's just unacceptable. Children are so innocent mm. and so unable to protect themselves at those younger ages, and we've put so much stigma and shame. And it's you know being that for so long they didn't believe the kids or didn't believe the spouses, and that there was so much stigma that people don't come forward. So they, right. they bury themselves and they just suffer in silence. And that's what's so sad.
1: Um, well, I, I think the way out of that is really to name what went on as abuse. This is abuse. This is physical. This is sexual. This is emotional. This is spiritual. This is an intellectual abuse. And then the other thing you can do is put a name to your feelings around that when this physical abuse happened, I felt, I keep them really simple. Joy, shame, pain, anger, fear, guilt, and loneliness. And that really enables uh, the survivor to draw a line between what they did, which is nothing, and what the perpetrator did. And then to take away that power that the perpetrator has and to internalize it and create their own power and their own agency, because you're a person. Now you have real feelings and they're valid. And I think that's how one real, it's not easy to do, but it's intellectually simple. It doesn't involve like a master's in something to simply understand. When I was hit, that was called physical abuse. And about that, I felt fear and I felt anger and I felt lonely and I felt fear shame. I felt guilt. Why did I feel guilt? I didn't hit me, you know, and that it, for me anyways, that really created a reality that I could thrive in. Now you made it
0: seem so simple that, but obviously (laughs) you were on a 30, you've been on a 30 year healing journey. So um, what is the starting point? Like you you obviously, did you have an aha moment where you were all of a sudden like, I got to go get help. I am falling apart. Or did it just gradually, you knew it was always wrong. And what, tell me about that process.
1: So the first step for me was a 12 step program. There are a number that I uh, qualify for, but my primary is food. I really have a, a real serious eating disorder and um, so, getting into overeaters anonymous, I mean, gonna, <laughs> overeaters anonymous. I I wasn't even thinking about addressing family of origin issues. I didn't I didn't see the connection at all. I wanted to not be as heavy as I was, and I wanted to not be thinking about food all the time. It was very simple. Um, and so I was working there for three years, and like I said, then the feelings were just so strong. It was so obvious. But along with those feelings were a lot of the horrific depression and nihilism and suicidal tendencies, which I had used, like all those feelings were right there with the abuse because those are normal responses to being abused as a child. But I am not a suicidal person. And that's when I knew something was wrong where I really had to go to, I had to go to inpatient treatment. I went for six weeks. And I, uh, I knew I was not going to survive, like literally was going to throw myself in front of a train. And I lived in a city where I had to take, take six train rides a day for my work, because I was zipping all over the place. And I thought I am, I am not gonna, I can like talk myself down a couple times, you know, a trains coming step back. I can't do that for months on end. And I just finally thought, The money it cost to go to treatment was not that much anymore. I mean, this was in the 80s. It was $20,000 or something. Now it would be like $100,000. So I got a great deal. But at the time, that was a lot of money to me. I didn't have that kind of money then any more than I had a couple hundred thousand dollars for treatment now. You know, I just I didn't have that kind of money. And suddenly I was willing to undertake that kind of debt to take care of myself. And it was the best thing I ever did because what I got there were the tools, the basic tools of surviving childhood trauma. And then I understood also how trauma underlines all abuse and can result in all addictions. So I kind of stepped away from everything bad that you can do and just put myself in an I'm in everything addict category.
0: <laughs> well, and I, I'm a firm believer in that everybody's an everything addict because you're doing whatever the whether it's eating or gambling or smoking or sex or drugs or drinking, whatever it is, you're doing it to numb something else. So exactly, if food isn't your drug of choice, then it becomes something else. So it's, you have to get, yeah, you have to get to the root problem and, you know, I,
1: I, in the, uh, in the process of understanding that I was an everything addict, I gave up drinking and it was very easy because I hadn't been acting out and drinking. And I was sober for 27 years. And one day I just have drink, just like I was making dinner. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to have some sparkling water with some Swedish bitters in it? Like, where did that come from? I didn't even know we had Swedish bitters in the house. <laughs> and I go looking and we have Swedish bitters because like, I always said I was an alcoholic and no one ever believed me because no one ever saw me drinking. So we had, and I wasn't tempted. And so I had that one drink and I didn't drink again for a year and a half. And then one day on a plane ride home, I got smashed, just smashed and came home and drank for like four hours straight. And for two days felt just as sick as a dog. I mean, that is poison. Mm -hmm. I mean, it had been almost 30 years of basically, not really having to try. Just like I don't drink, and then people don't offer you drink. And then I started going to AA again. You know, I was like, here I am. Still an alcoholic. Well, <laughs> luckily I, that was my bottom.
0: Yeah. And I yeah. think, I mean, but I think your message is very clear that there are programs out there, 12-step programs, for just about every single thing that there's out there.
1: So you've oh, yeah. been you've been to OA and AA. S L A A, And what? SLAA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Okay. And that's kind of keep me busy. I don't really, I went to one gambling anonymous meeting just because I was in an area where they only had gambling anonymous and I needed a meeting. So I went and it, woo, that one scared me. I thought I do not even want to pick up there that yeah. i mean people were talking about hundreds and thousands of dollars that's nuts
0: yeah when you like, have when you have a gambling addiction i it's not very uncommon to lose your house to lose everything, everything very quickly
1: every i mean oh my i could not i mean i just like i had no real concept of that and now it's very clear to me how easily that could happen mm-hmm. you know i mean it's all like right there if you're if i understand how close i am to any addiction Mm-hmm. You know, it's all just, it's right there waiting to happen. It's, it's like a little snake. And but it, you know, what would you say is the key is the
0: key to not stepping into the, any of them? Cause I always say awareness and, is a hundred percent of everything.
1: Well, for me, man, it's humility. Okay. <laughs> I have to say after picking up after 27 years and picking up and not telling anybody and then picking up again, it's just like, stay humble. Do not think I am free and clear. Do not think gambling would never happen to me because whatever, no one's in my family has ever gambled or, you know, whatever people tell themselves, anything could happen to me. I'm very aware. And I'm also aware that anything could happen to my kids because they got half my genes, you know, and so too to be basically a good role model. You know, I mean, my husband is a very moderate person. He is like just a moderate guy. I don't know how we make sense, but we make great sense. And so he can have a beer. And so the, our kids know dad has a beer every now and again, and mom likes tea, you know? So to drink in front of them, I think would be kind of the worst to be at a point where I had to drink and they were around would be, uh, extremely painful. And I think it would really confuse them. Confuse them. Yes. Yeah. So staying humble is my way to do it, I think.
0: Well, very cool. And I know all of your stuff that you do is all about positivity and it's all about hope and it's all about the ability to heal from whatever. So talk on that for just a second.
1: Well, um, let's see. Hope. Where are we going to be without hope? I have always been a positive person. I I deal with clinical depression. I'm on five antidepressants. So it's not like I just go la-di-da and I'm gonna be hopeful. Hope is something you have to work for um, because the world is a difficult place and it's extremely dark right now. It's very challenging to just uh, be hopeful. I find that um, grounding every day with my Tai Chi practice, is it's not the intent to be hopeful. The intent is to be balanced, I would say. Tai Chi is a Taoist practice, Taoism being based on, we call them yin and yang. I hear yin and yang in my head because I learned them when I was in Asia. So that's how they're pronounced yin and yang when they are oppositional polarities. They're not opposites, but they have pulls in equal direction. And if you get yourself in between those two gravitational pulls, you got real space for yourself to grow. So the it's a form, which is like a long dance. It can take you five to 15 minutes, depending on how slowly you do it. There are a million different forms you can learn. And in the novel, in as far as you can go before you have to come back, I deliberately give Carly this chance to use Tai Chi as part of her healing because it's been so critical to me because just doing this simple thing every day, which I find very enjoyable. It's a nice way to like meditate and get your workout done at the same time. You don't have to double up on that. I can't meditate sitting still. I'm far too, you'd say I'd have yang energy. It's very outward. (laughs) I need to be moving and talking and giggling. And so that, um, Tai Chi matched me in terms of my needs to express positivity. But I think a yoga practice is, it's the same thing. It's just a different form. Some people find hope. Certainly, I would hope your children would give you hope. Um, I think a lot of people do an art painting or drawing or throwing clay or cooking. You know, some people, if I think the more you can fill yourself with positivity, the easier it is to be positive. I will say one thing. Tai Chi is based on circles. All the movements are are circular. And I really found in doing the circular movement, like it replaced the negative circles that I had been brought up to expect of myself. I was able to, like physically, I was doing circles of positivity. And in Taoism, and therefore in Tai Chi, there's no difference between your body and your mind it is Absolutely. one and the same. Yeah. So what you're doing physically is going to show up emotionally as well as spiritually. Um, and I found that to be true.
0: Oh yeah. And I a hundred percent believe that it's even just like when you're talking about the awareness, it's where do you feel it in your body? Because all of your yes. happiness, all of your, everything is stored in the energy in your body for sure.
1: That's a great point. Yeah, it is. And I think, uh, Tai Chi, I mean, it's chi, the chi part is based on what a lot of people might have heard of called chi energy, chi being kind of like, it's almost a combination of spirit and blood, I think, although I don't know that a Chinese medicine doctor would describe it that way, they probably have a better (laughs) description. But the way I see it, it is, it's inherently what moves through you. And if you can move that in a positive direction, it will carry you. And one teacher said to me, you know, whatever you can't handle the earth can. I actually put that in the novel because it was so uh, mind opening to me that I didn't have to literally carry all this stuff around, that I could just leave it on the ground if I needed to and use those positive movements to move away from it.
0: Absolutely. And even just a simple like that, that's why grounding exercises and grounding meditations are so powerful. It's like you're bringing in all of this energy and you're pushing it out through the ground, like what you don't want, or you're just getting rid of it. You're you're it's all grounded and or you can bring the positive energy up and out, but it's all connecting. And like you said, it's grounding is huge, getting yourself huge. grounded.
1: Well, when you were talking about at the beginning about disassociation, I spent most of my childhood kind of floating above myself. I think I have a lot of Time that's simply like white space, like the glare off a pavement, a white pavement in the summertime, like things just didn't happen. And as I began to come back to myself and believe myself around this was trauma, this was abuse, this was how I felt about it. The memory started to fill in, Um, but I really did spend a lot of time like in my head. And then if it got more dangerous outside my head, looking down on myself and, um, the kind, the grounding exercises that literally put your feet, your bare feet on the ground to the earth. <laughs> I was like, this is the reality. This is the earth. This is, you know, she's my mother. She's my real mother. You know, I can't, I can't trust my real mother. So the earth can become my real mother. That was very healing.
0: Absolutely. So. I don't want to take up too much of your time. This I could actually literally talk to you about this all day long. I know long, you're
1: fantastic. <laughs> I know. I want. I know. I'm
0: like, oh, I got to. I got to get the book. Now I'm like, I got this whole list of things I got to look up. And, but I mean, you do spread a message of hope. And to me, again, it's amazing because the people listening to this podcast, a lot of them have been through so many types of dysfunction in so many different levels. Um, and that's why I do this. I do this so that people can get a different perspective. I mean, my situation you might not resonate with it because you didn't live with two alcoholic parents or whatever. But so everybody has their own story, but I love that the people on it have a story of hope. You know, Mm -hmm. I look at you and like you said, you still, it's a, it's a healing journey. It's a lifelong journey, but you still do the Tai Chi all the time. You still do it when you listed those things. And you said to put things in perspective and just accept that they happened and give them a name and then give them an emotion I was very aware of the fact that joy was the only positive emotion you gave. You gave joy, loneliness, sadness, fear, anger. Literally, you gave seven negative and one positive. So joy has got to be your focus point, doesn't it?
1: Well, once you got joy, everything else is, it'll just happen. I mean, I, I try to keep it simple because it's easier. And joy kind of encapsulates a lot that it, it's important for me I didn't come up with that list, by the way, that was um, Donna Bevanley and Pia Melody at the Meadows came up with that list. But when I was there, they were, but to understand the shades of feeling around the negativity was important, yes. but they just said, you know, joy works. And I thought, yeah, that works. I mean, I could say, I feel happy. I feel there are a lot of things, but I, you know, when I feel happy, I'd, I'd like to go deeper than that. I'd like but to actually I, get yes, to joy because, like,
0: when I think of happy versus joy, and actually, in my book, I actually have a section on happy versus joy. Where happy mm-hmm. is, you know, I'm happy that my room is clean right now, but right. joyful is what I feel for my children and my puppy. It's yes. more, it's more deep and it's more internal.
1: It's yes, it's, and nurturing and yes, yeah. So, like to internal, me, there is a huge difference good. between
0: just happiness and joy. Like joy yeah. is
1: like it. Like that's what your joy is it. I mean, and once you get that hope and joy thing circulating, uh, you know, with all apologies to Sarah Palin, it really is working for me. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I'm going
0: to definitely check out your book and I'm going to say the name of your book again, even though it'll be in the links, just so if anybody's listening, they can jot it down. And it's far, it's the name is as far as you can go before you have to come back. And I think I, I can't wait to read it myself personally but give us some words of wisdom. So people that have been through something horrific and you didn't have to give any details and we just know that you had it rough. Like you had, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you had some trials and tribulations. What would be one piece of advice or some words of wisdom from Allie Hall that you could give to them?
1: For what it's worth, I would say, believe yourself. And if people are telling you that you're making it up, or you're being dramatic, or they had it worse, or look at everything else that's going on in the world, just walk away and find people who will support you in doing what you need to do. You know, there's this, uh, this feeling that I think we have as Americans, where our pain isn't as bad as other people's pain, because we're a wealthy country, or because we happen to be white in America or because whatever reason. Um, but the fact is my pain is my pain and it's the worst thing I've gone through. And in order for me to be a functional and healthy and productive person, I need to address the things that are getting between me and joy. And I think the main thing to do is believe in yourself and work towards hope. Absolutely.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I so appreciate it. I don't think I could have said that any better myself.
1: Well, thank you, Tracy. I really appreciate your time.
0: You are very welcome. And again, for all of you listening, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what happened. There is always hope. There is always room for joy. And there's always people to believe in you, but you have to believe in yourself for sure. So stop back and see us. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Adult Child of Dysfunction podcast. If this episode resonated with you, or you think someone else could benefit from what you heard, why not share it with someone you care about? Let's heal from our past and take back control of our lives together. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to www.tammyvincent.com for a free chapter of my book, Surviving Alcoholic Parents. While you're there, be sure to catch my invigorating seminar, Awakening Your Authentic Self. Together, we will rewrite our stories and turn trials into triumphant smiles. Until next time, keep embracing your strength, keep being you and know that you are more than enough. You are way more than enough right here, right now.